Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Pharmac. I'm Rachel Jones, a GP, and today I'm talking to Dr. Goresh Kanji about the diagnosis and management of primary headache in general practice. Goresh is a fellow of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners and a musculoskeletal pain um, expert in Wellington. He's founder of the New Zealand Pain Foundation and has many years of experience researching and managing pain. His PhD explored the causation of headache disorders, the migraine gene, and the role of the sympathetic nervous system in chronic pain. Welcome, Goresh. Thank you, Rachel. Headaches can be challenging condition for both doctor and patient. So Goresh is here today to share some insights and best practice tips for managing headaches. So can you start with clarifying with the listeners what type of headaches we are exploring in this podcast? Today we're going to restrict our podcast to tension type headache, migraine and medication overuse headache. We must remember Rachel that headache is the most common neurological problem in the world and in fact all of us at one time or other would have experienced tension type headache and around 15% of us experience migraine. So what are your key learning points about diagnosing primary headache in general practice? The key learning point really is that to diagnose a primary headache we must exclude all the secondary sources of headache and this sometimes requires a detective-like approach to go through all the different things that can cause headache. Unfortunately, uh, many, many medical conditions have headache as a symptom, making this sometimes difficult. So what salient questions do we need to ask the patient? We need to ask the patients uh, questions to exclude secondary sources of headaches. Firstly, we need to ask patients whether it's their typical type of headache or whether there's been some change, such as an increase in frequency or severity or a different distribution. We need to know if there was an explosive onset, sudden onset, any fits, faints, other neurological symptoms. We also need to know if the headache's been progressing over a week and is it worse on coughing, sneezing, bending or exertion. Of course we need to ask about their past medical history. Do they have a history of cancer in the past or HIV infection to lead us into possible secondary sources. Also a history of trauma including car accidents, falls and sometimes fist fights need to be asked about. And then, as a musculoskeletal specialist, I like to ask people about their necks. Do they have neck stiffness, pain, and is the neck perhaps a source of pain? Is it important to explore the potential psychosocial impact that headaches can have on an individual? Absolutely, Rachel. Headache is one of those symptoms that sort of almost pervades our mind and the area within which we think. And if you're getting a regular headache or a severe headache, it's going to often stop you from performing your occupational tasks. You may not be able to do your home tasks. Your relationship may suffer. And when it's getting to this stage, we really need to get a move on to help people and make sure the headaches aren't ruining their lives. So run us through the must-do aspects of the examination. Examination will start usually with a neurological examination. We need to run through the simple things such as power, sensation, reflexes, coordination. Fundoscopy, looking for papilledema is essential. Signs of meningeal irritation like neck stiffness. We need to look at their temperature to exclude infections. We need to look at their blood pressure. Is their blood pressure raised at the moment? And is this co contributing to their headache or giving them risks of other things? I think an eyesight and a hearing test is useful to exclude these things. 
Then examining the neck, uh, and simply a range of motion, does it hurt at the end of rotation? Is there significant mu muscle tenderness? One study found in people with headache and migraine that 75 to 85% of the people actually had coexisting neck pain. So I often wonder, in people with primary headache, are they having referred pain from the neck? And interestingly, another study studying tension-type headache looked at a treatment exclusively aimed at the neck using a TheraBand treating the deep flexors of the neck. And they found that 85% of the people had a 50% reduction in headache pain. And this is a, a significant result. So it shows us some clues that many of our primary headache problems may in fact stem from the neck. So what red flags do we need to be aware of, Garash? As doctors, I think we always worry about missing serious sources of headache. I think we can reassure our patients and be fairly um, aware that these serious sources of headache are few and far between. Um, and firstly, we need to make sure that the history, and once again, and I've alluded to this before, you know, was there an explosive onset? Was it the most severe headache the person's ever experienced? Have they got accompanying neurological symptoms? Things like nausea, vomiting, visual disturbance. Do they have sensitivity to light? Have they had a seizure, a fall, or a faint? And have they got confusion? So these things will alert us to some more severe cause of headache. A persistent and progressive headache over a week, getting worse by the day, worse on coughing, sneezing, that may alert us to some intracranial uh, hemorrhage, subdural hematoma. About half the people will present with a history of trauma for subdural hematoma, uh, and the other half won't any, have any history. So we need to be aware that not everyone presents the same. A new onset of headache is quite an important feature. So if someone's hardly ever gotten a headache and suddenly they present with a severe headache, uh, and especially if they've got a history of cancer or HIV, uh, we really need to be looking and excluding metastases or infection. The other thing in the history, uh, in, in a red flag, is looking for trauma, as I've said before, because then we can exclude uh, sources of neck pain as a headache as well as other more serious conditions. Uh, inflammation and temporal arteritis in the elderly needs to be considered, and obviously infections such as meningitis, sinusitis, and pharyngitis among others. Let's take a closer look at tension headaches. What features typified this type of headache? I think the most important thing here is that tension headache is not a severe headache. And if we've got patients in front of us, I always use the pain score. And if they're sort of saying their pain is five, seven, eight, nine, or 10, we're probably not looking at a tension headache. Almost under five, it's probably a tension headache. Although these rules aren't hard and fast, it's it really, reasonably, it's a, a good rule of thumb. Usually the headache's bilateral, it's a throbbing type of headache, and usually there's no nausea, vomiting. Uh, there's usually no sensitivity to light or sound. However, the definition um, states that you can either have sensitivity light or sound, but not both, in a tension-type headache. Just like migraine, tension headaches have triggers, and the typical tri triggers are actually similar to migraine, and these include alcohol, eye strain, a poor night's sleep, 
sometimes if you miss your morning cup of coffee, about half of us will experience a tension headache. Emotional stress, obviously, flu symptoms. So you've told us about some triggers, but if we go to the nitty gritty of what causes tension headaches? Well, during my PhD, I explored a model that looked at what causes tension type headache. And obviously we know that stress is one of the triggers for tension type headaches. I took this a little further and, and looked at what happens during the stress response. Now one of the things that happens is the sympathetic nervous system and the hypothalamic pituitary axis are activated during the stress response. So what I found was that during the stress response in the brain, six or more neurotransmitters are released. And these are ones we commonly hear about. Serotonin, histamine, adrenaline, noradrenaline, corticotrophic releasing hormone, and acetylcholine. And what I found was there are in fact receptors for some of these in the thalamus and sensory cortex. And when the neurotransmitter attached to the, to the receptor, second messengers are released and these open up ion channels and then cause second reaction potentials. So I suspect there's a mechanism whereby the stress response directly causes action potentials in the sensory cortex giving rise to headache pain. Now taking this even further, all the things that act as triggers for headache often create a sympathetic response. Alcohol, a poor night's sleep, psychosocial stress, um, and alcohol is an interesting one. We often think of dehydration being of importance, but in fact headache migraine is least common in Africa and most common in Europe, and dehydration would certainly be the other way around. And in fact what happens during a heavy nights binge drinking is overnight the sympathetic nervous system is activated uh, creates these neurotransmitters and in the morning we'll wake up with a often a, quite a severe headache. We have communicated to our patient that we think that this is a tension type headache and the patient is saying do I need more investigation such as a CT scan. How can we reassure our patient that this is not required? Well, firstly I think it's the natural course of the headache. Often what happens is people have tension type headache or migraine frequently um, or rarely, and then they have them very frequently because of a psychosocial stressor. Most of the time, this will go away. And so in a month or so, they'll be back to their normal baseline, hopefully. And the main thing here is we need maybe some follow-up. Now, often patients may not be willing to come back and pay another fee. So even a, ring, a phone call from the nurse in a month's time if you're concerned and say, hey, how's your headaches going? And if they're not quite right, then we'll need to call them back to ensure that nothing more serious is going on. The other thing we can tell our patients is they're very rare. You know, the tumours, the brain tumours and things causing headache are extremely rare. Um, so is meningitis and other serious life-threatening causes. I think once we do a neurological examination and we've ex they've told us there's no signs or symptoms particularly of neurological problems, that sort of reassures us that we're pretty unlikely to miss something. And so we, you know, we can at least say, look, the chances of anything serious are very low here. And really it's going to be at follow-up, perhaps a month or two later, if the headaches are still continuing and becoming a problem, and, and they're worried. And if they're really worried about a brain tumour, um, sometimes our reassurance may not be enough. 
we, we're going to have to send them to the neurologist or we're going to have to do a CT scan or an MRI scan and say, hey, there's no brain tumour here. And often this is the sort of reassurance patients want. And, and I'm, I'm quite a keen believer in objective, verifiable data. And that's why I do sometimes like getting scans done uh, at the appropriate points in time because we can reassure them objectively rather than what is our own opinion. So your key learning points for managing tension headaches, and perhaps you could break this down into talking about lifestyle measures, medications, and also complementary therapies and any evidence base behind these. The research shows because tension headaches are mild sort of headache, that Panadol, Paracetamol, or Aspirin work, and they work for most people. Now if these don't work, then Ibuprofen, Diclofenac, or naproxen in higher doses has been shown in the literature to work better than some paracetamol or aspirin. So that's the stepwise approach. Combining caffeine with these is actually shown to improve analgesia by 20 to 30 percent. So if they're having a headache, you know, they can take the analgesia with a cup of coffee or tea, and this should help them more. Now, we run into trouble, and the patients run into trouble when the headaches are more frequent. So if they're getting on to sort of 10 or 15 days in a week, they're getting on to a diagnosis of episodic tension type headache or chronic tension type headache. That's when it will be interfering with their lives. And once this happens, prophylactic therapy really needs to be at least discussed, if not started. And some people are resistant to medicine, so there are many prophylactic measures uh, which don't require medications that can be discussed, which I'll talk about today, Rachel. Firstly, amitriptyline, that's got the best evidence. And interestingly, I was just doing some reading about amitriptyline, and that works on multiple receptors. Um, and, and basically, it reduces action potentials in the brain. Hence, it works for most chronic pain conditions to some degree. It's been shown to reduce tension type headache around 40%, which is pretty good. Interestingly, a combination of amitriptyline and stress management in a study was even better than amitriptyline alone. So this can be even better to introduce some sort of mindfulness or stress management. The newer antidepressants such as citalopram and fluoxetine are ineffective for tension type headache, so they're not worth reaching for as a second line agent at all. Um, Botox has been studied and shown to be the same as injecting normal saline and certainly is not effective for tension headache. Acupuncture, also about the same as a sham acupuncture. Now, as I discussed previously, if the sympathetic nervous system is increasing uh, for psychosocial stress and other problems, reducing the sympathetic nervous system tone should help. And things that reduce sympathetic tone in the studies performed three to four times a week for eight to 12 weeks include yoga, exercise above 50% maximum heart rate, tai chi, sauna, 20 minutes three times a week, as well as meditation. So these things you might find are useful for tension type headache. And indeed, the literature shows these. There's been a study of meditation for chronic tension type headaches, and this showed a, an amazing sort of 80% reduction in tension type headache. 
I personally performed a study of sauna, 20 minutes, three times a week for eight weeks as part of my PhD. And we found 45% reductions in headache pain and 45% reduction in duration of headaches, about the same as amitriptyline. There was a small study, however, the group of patients had headache for 24 out of 28 days and an average of 16 years they'd suffered from tension type headache and half of the group attending the sauna were basically better. Regular aerobic exercise has also been shown to improve pain scores for tension headache in a randomized control trial and CBT has also been studied. Cognitive behavioral therapy has been studied versus cognitive behavioral therapy um, self-directed using one of the web programs and what this study showed was that going to the therapist and using a web style program were pretty much the same and so the cost effectiveness of doing self-directed CBT um, has got to be considered and requires little funding. So you've given us a comprehensive overview of tension type headaches, thank you Goresh. But let's move on now to discussing migraine. So let's start with what typical features define this condition. I like to define migraine as a hereditary predisposition to sensory amplification. I don't like to define migraine as just a severe headache. And the reason I say this is that People with migraine have electrical channels in their brain that are actually different. And these have been typed in, in conditions such as hemiplegic migraine, but in the common form of migraine, there are multiple genes in which the, the loci are located, hence we haven't typed it for common migraine. But what we find is people with migraine are actually sensitive to light, sound, pain, touch and smell because their channels produce more action potentials within their sensory cortex than people without migraine. And as well as this, people with migraine have three to four times the risk of complex regional pain syndrome, 6.6 times the risk of developing fibromyalgia, and two to three times the risk of actually having back pain. So it seems that they amplify all pain. Now, Around a third of patients experience migraine with aura, what we call the typical migraine. And the aura represents a flash of action potential in the sensory cortex, often in the visual center, that gives them some sort of fuzzy image. Flickering or jagged lines, or sometimes blind spots. Occasionally the aura can be a smell even. It's, it's really one of my pet areas which I really enjoy reading about and studying about and, uh, and, and really I think it's very important for general practitioners to understand what a migraine, what migraine means for people. And it's the migraine aura and the epileptic fit are in fact the same phenomena occurring in different parts of the brain. And people with epilepsy have spontaneous discharges of action potentials in their motor cortex and hence they have a fit. Uh, and in fact, when we look at the studies, if you have migraine, you have four to five times the risk of epilepsy and vice versa. Uh, and I found this very fascinating. Also, a, a big problem is headache and migraine around menstruation. And what actually happens with that is prostaglandins are produced. And these, in fact, attach to our brain and increase action potentials and also may reduce the threshold for action potentials. Hence, 
lots of people will experience headache and migraine around their menstrual cycles and in fact all pain can be worse around the menstrual cycle such as back pain as well. So migraines can of course present atypically. What are we looking out for here Garash? Well a typical migraine goes through the phases, the prodrome, the aura, um, then the headache pain and sometimes the tiredness afterwards. An atypical migraine jumps straight to the headache and they don't have all the stages. They skip the aura phase. So what's the key to migraine management? The keys to migraine management are similar to tension headache with a few tweaks. Firstly, triggers are good to be identified and avoided if possible. Some of these include alcohol, poor sleep, missed meals, strenuous exercise, obviously stress as well, and some other triggers, bright lights, cheese. <clears throat> Firstly, we need to look at, if they're presenting with lots of migraines, we need to look at their stresses, we need to look at their jobs, we need to look at their home life, we look, need to look at if they're doing some extra study perhaps, voluntary work, all these things will contribute and add stress to someone's life. And the other thing that'll happen is once they have a migraine, it's quite a severe condition, they'll be out of action for one to two days, which will further impede their ability to carry on with the life that people want to lead. So it'll cause more stress. Going on to sort of medical treatments and, and tablets, the firstly non-steroidals are the first line. And anything such as ibuprofen, naproxen, diclofenac, taken in a reasonable dose uh, is useful, but these need to be taken early. And I can't stress this enough. Once the nausea, vomiting, and the gastric stasis has taken hold, almost nothing orally is gonna work because we're just not gonna get absorption. It's not that they don't work, it's that they won't be absorbed. And really, using things like Buckastem, metoclopramide, they may be useful to use in the first instance, and then wait half an hour, then try some oral medication. And this may prevent people coming into the emergency room or coming to your GP with a, rooms with a severe migraine. Now, other things that are useful, obviously, for migraine are suppositories. And diclofenac and stematol are available as suppositories. And having people <coughs> keep these on hand, I think, is a useful stepwise approach. People need a toolbox at home uh, for migraine, and I think that's vital. Triptans are serotonin agonists, and they reduce action potentials once they attach to their, their receptors. And these basically revolutionize the treatment of migraine. Around 60% will have their migraine alleviated within a couple of hours. And this really has changed people's lives as to waiting one or two days before their migraine subsides. They also help nausea and vomiting as well. And like any oral tablet, they basically help taken early. It's no use waiting for the nausea vomiting to set in. However, fortunately, the triptans are available as a nasal spray, uh, patches, and also injections. Now, I see a lot of migraine people who, in fact, have never heard about the sumatriptan injection. Now, just as we carry an EpiPen for anaphylaxis, 
I think people with migraine um, should really be educated about possibly carrying a sumatriptan IM injection because this again will save disruptions to their lives having to go into the uh, emergency departments. It certainly possibly save GPs a lot of strife when patients come in. Now when patients do come into our surgeries and they've got an acute migraine, the first line should be diclofenac, 75 uh, intramuscularly, and 88% of people in one study um, improved and became pain-free. Metoclopramide or clopromazine can be given IM, and this will help their nausea as well as headache, and also help absorption of oral tablets later. It's usually best to avoid pethidine, however, quite often patients have tried a lot of things and they know that pethidine works for them. And in this situation, when they come in, it's very hard to resist. Um, and, and other options are cafegot. Um, now, going to prophylaxis, Rachel. If migraines are frequent and once again disrupting people's lives, we need to look at prophylaxis. We can't really just be the ambulance every time they have an acute migraine because this is not going to work for anyone. The best prophylactic is one discovered in 1966 and it's of course the beta blockers and it's an interesting story. Um, a patient was at the emergency room having angina and at the same time he was actually having a migraine. They were giving him the beta blocker, suddenly the migraine disappeared, <laughs> like magic. And this has been the only reason <coughs> that we still use beta blockers today. And in large trials, it can reduce the frequency of migraine from around 3 to about 1.7. <clears throat> and 44% of people achieved a 50% reduction in migraine frequency, which is significant. There's also some evidence for amitriptyline and sodium valproate. Tapiramate is one of the newer agents and is often used by neurologists and has been shown to reduce migraines from about 5.5 to 3.5 per month. Similar tension headache, stress can increase the frequency of migraine and increase the action potentials in the sensory cortex and thalamus. So studies have shown that exercise three times a week has been the same as tapiramate. Yoga practice one hour five days a week for 12 weeks reduced migraine frequency from 10 to 5 per, per month. It also reduced pain, anxiety and depression in this group. The control group had no reduction in any of these measures, interestingly. As stress uh, amplifies all pain, including migraine and tension type headache, we, when our patients come in with acute episodes that are more frequent, we need to counsel them that habits such as moderate exercise, sauna, yoga, tai chi and meditation should be brought into the fold of their lives regularly to try and eliminate these migraines occurring frequently. Now I'd like to also stress that one of the things I see is people with migraines come to see me, they've been to the neurologist had the serious sources of headache uh, excluded. They've often trialled several um, prophylactic medicines and often they sometimes don't tolerate them. So they've come to see me and say, hey doc, 
uh, is my neck giving me my migraines? And can you exclude this? And quite often when I look through all the investigations and I'm looking at the um, MRI scans of the head, there's no neck investigations. And I find this quite baffling. Uh, and so I'll usually send them for an MRI scan and many of these turn up with a disc prolapse or other things in the neck that once I start treating them, uh, over six months, their migraine and their neck pains can improve. So I think we probably really need to investigate the neck as well as the head, often at the same time. Because if we come up with a normal neck invest head investigation, uh, it's often left there. Some very interesting learning points there, Garash. So let's move on now to looking at rebound headaches. What does that term actually mean? Rebound headaches are medication overuse headache. And so what we've found is that if you take frequent analgesia, and sometimes this can be two or three times a week, uh, people can develop rebound headaches. So the headaches get worse. And there's a few things that may account for this. Some people think that if you take frequent analgesia during the day, at night you may have, be having a withdrawal. So in the morning you may wake up with a headache because overnight you haven't taken analgesia. And another thing that can also happen is that the receptors in your brain can become more sensitive. And so I think probably both of these are implicit in medication overuse headache. So your top tips for identifying and managing rebound or medicine overuse headaches? Well firstly we need to take a careful history and especially an analgesic history. Now this is not as easy as before. Nowadays over-the-counter medicines are available and there's no one really logging um, the use of these. So patients might buy them, use them, have empty packets at home. Before we could just go to the pharmacy, see what scripts are being dispensed, and we sort of have some handle on it. But we need to ask them, you know, what are you taking over the counter? You're taking paracetamol, you're taking neurofin, etc. And once we're, they're taking a significant amount of this, then we need to say to them, hey, hold on here. What we're probably getting here is that your headache is actually getting worse and more frequent because of all the tablets you're taking. I know this sounds a bit unusual, but this is very much a common phenomena. So, you know, we're not going to really get much buy-in from patients saying, hey, look, we've got to stop all your painkillers because they're taking the painkillers for the severe pain. <laughs> so it's quite an interesting uh, sort of problem. And it, and it can sometimes take several weeks. Uh, however, abrupt However, stopping their tablets abruptly works better than stopping them slowly. But this may take some buy-in. And recovery um, will take two to three weeks usually for simple analgesics and often two to longer for opiates and often shorter, maybe a week for triptans. Rachel. So we've covered a lot of ground in this podcast. In conclusion, your take-home messages for our listeners. In conclusion, troublesome headache and migraine can be very difficult to treat. I think, you know, we really need to look at the secondary sources, and sometimes we can be tripped up. There are some conditions uh, which are very difficult to detect early on, and one of these is a slowly growing intracranial tumour. This can sometimes present with no real accessory symptoms and signs, and I think 
lifestyle choices need to be discussed for long-term management. I'm really in favour that we do send people, you know, along um, to exercise regularly, perhaps Tai Chi, yoga, meditation, mindfulness courses. We really need to use these complementary therapies to try and reduce the stress our patients are under. In the modern lifestyle, I think we often have less time for all these and more things that we do that actually add to our stressful lifestyles. The last thing is that I believe the neck is under-investigated and I may be biased being a pain, a musculoskeletal pain specialist, (laughs) but I think a neck x-ray at least uh, is a reasonable thing, especially if a headache has been continuing for three to six months. Thank you, Garesh. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for inviting me along today, Rachel. If you're a New Zealand primary care practitioner and would like to claim CME points for listening to this podcast, fill in the reflection of learning form found on our website goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.